Thanks, Lily. Hey, everybody. How are y'all doing tonight? Oh, hey. Whoever said that was great. I uh, hope y'all are well tonight. Welcome to RUF. Welcome to Large Group. It's good to see you all. Uh, thanks for coming on a cold night in the midst of <coughs> the, uh, yeah, the last, man, y'all, there's like two weeks left of classes, uh, four weeks left in the semester, which is nuts. So time flies. Um, so yeah, it's good to see you all here tonight. Uh, oh, man. I pulled my back today, so this will be fun. Uh, so yeah. Uh, hey, I encourage you, before we get started, to, to do the Dress the Child event. They need uh, as many people as they can possibly get on Sunday night. Uh, there's just apparently going to be tons and tons of kids there, and they need help uh, with clothes. So this is a great way for us to give back to our community and to uh, help kids out um, Yeah, so that they're not cold on nights like this. So if that doesn't tug your heartstrings, don't know what will. Um, so yeah, come, come hang out with us. <clears throat> and give back to the community. Um, so we're continuing our study tonight uh, of John, and tonight we're coming to probably the one thing that we all know about <laughs> Jesus, um, the thing that, that sort of the defining moment in what we think of when we think about Jesus, and that's the, the crucifixion, uh, the moment when Jesus dies, uh, dies on the cross and you know, everybody, everybody knows something about this. You know, if you ask pretty much anyone in America, what did Jesus do? They would say, you know, ostensibly, or he, you know, factually, something like that, Jesus died on the cross. Uh, and so there's good reason um, to study that. And, and the way I want to look at it tonight is sort of has a climax of everything that we've been studying. Everything that we've been looking at the last, I don't know how many weeks we've been here, 12 weeks of the semester, not that many, I don't know. This is the climax of, of what uh, we've been studying. And I was thinking about that today. I was thinking, like, we all love a good climax story, right? We all love something that builds and builds and goes a place. <clears throat> and we love it when a story comes together and goes a place and it ends up in something like, oh, wow, this is, this is significant. This is big. I was thinking about, like, think about the Marvel comic universe. I know some of us are sick of those movies. I've heard one loved them. I remember going to see Iron Man when it was in theaters. It was 2008. I was just, like, just about to leave for college. And at the very end of the first Iron Man, there's like a, you know, after the credits roll, like this little piece of the next movie. And we're like, oh, wow. Then the next movie comes out. And the next, and you know, every movie, they're leaking, they're telling us a little bit more. The next one's coming. And pretty soon we start to think of like, oh, wow, there's something that ties all these movies together. They're, they're like going a place. And you start to see pictures, you know, start seeing Thanos. And then Thanos says like, oh, fine, I'll do it myself. And it just gets bigger and bigger. And it's building towards this ginormous climax. And we're all excited about it. We're excited for what that moment is going to be. And then we get Infinity War and Endgame. And they're the highest grossing films of all time. <clears throat> like, we all wanted to see what was going to happen. We, wanted, we, we love a good climax story. And tonight, that's what happens with Jesus. That's what this is tonight. Is this is the climax of everything that we've been studying, everything about who Jesus is, all of these signs that he does, if you've been with us, all of these statements of who he is, I am the bread, I am the light, I am the resurrection, all of those are coming together <coughs> at this moment. 
There's, so there's tons that can be said about the crucifixion, obviously. <laughs> it's the most influential event in human history. Like, I just don't think you can disagree with that statement. Even if you don't believe in it, you have to say its historical value is just unprecedented. Um, so I just want to look at this as the climax and, and, and three things of note that I want to study tonight. How the crucifixion is, uh, how it shows us how, how our shame is born, uh, how our sin is removed, and how glory is shown. Uh, so let's look at that, and uh, and we'll we'll dig in. <clears throat> so we're going to look at uh, we're going to start at verse the middle of verse sixteen. You've probably uh, read this before, but I'll read it for us. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then, the clo- then, the soldiers had cruci- then when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four pieces, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Skipping to verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, um, as we come now to... Um, a heavy passage, a passage in which God dies. And as we look at, even briefly now, what it means for us, I pray that you would be with us, uh, that your spirit would illumine our minds and uh, show us how good you are, even in the midst of this darkness, and the love that you have for us in this. Uh, So be with us now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the climax of the story is what's happening here is that Jesus is, you know, Jesus has been driving for the past 19 chapters to this moment where he says, this is the work that I've come to do. I've come to do something. I'm not just here to teach you. I'm actually here to to accomplish something, to finish something. And so now at the beginning of chapter 14, he says, the hour has come. It's time for me to do what I'm here to do. So, so then he, he, he's betrayed and he gets handed over to the chief priests and to the Jews and the Romans and he gets put on this monkey trial that is clearly a rigged gig so that he's, even though he's innocent, he gets found guilty. And uh, Pilate, the Roman judge in, uh, in charge, says, well, I'm not going to kill him. And the Jews said, well, if you don't kill him, then we're going to basically start a riot and then that's going to look really bad for you as a governor. And he's like, okay, fine, I'll kill him. So they bring him out. <clears throat> they take him outside of the city and... Uh, they crucify Jesus. And um, I want to look at tonight, not just at, uh, not necessarily at the event itself, but sort of what it means, what it means and why it's important to us. And so again, three ways, uh, how Jesus bears our shame, 
how he removes our sin, and how he shows us his glory. So let's look at those things. <clears throat> First, I want to look at how he bears our shame. Uh, and I think this is important because uh, this, is, this is kind of a simple point, but it starts with this, that Jesus bears the shame that we carry. But he does that by taking that shame onto himself. So I'm sure many of you have you know, something about what crucifixion is. Um, if you've seen the, you know, the, the Passion of the Christ, that Mel Gibson movie that came out when y'all were little e-hosts, but when I was a little older. Um, and, uh, you know, we all know what happens, that there's this, there's this event where somebody's taken and they're spread out on a cross and nailed and whipped, and it's an incredibly painful event. Um, but not only was it a painful event, in fact, I've been doing a lot of reading on the crucifixion the last couple of months. It, as painful as it was, it was a more shameful event that there was almost more shame in the crucifixion than there was pain in it. So the crucifixion was, it was the main, the main means of capital punishment in the Roman Empire at the time. It was the way that political prisoners or, or people who were not in favor in the Roman Empire were, were executed. And there were two goals in this form of execution, pain and shame. Pain and shame. The pain is obvious. We all know about the pain. It's like there's a reason why we have the word excruciating. It comes from crucifixion, where a person is literally, you know, killed in as slowly as possible and, you know, whipped till they were, you know, they, I mean, the, the, the accounts say they were whipped until their entrails fell out and um, they have to carry their own cross and then they're nailed up in such a way that they have to basically to breathe, poise themselves up on nails to try and get a breath and then they have to let lower back down and the death is basically through asphyxiation that you can't breathe. And so you're basically forced by exhaustion and blood loss to become your own executioner. And just, you die of not breathing. And so, incredibly painful event. But as painful as it was, the shame was worse. The shame of crucifixion was worse. Think about it. Uh, and in fact, the scripture seems to put more of an emphasis on the shame. It just says they crucified him. It doesn't go into all this gory detail. Scripture doesn't tell us all this stuff. What does scripture, what is this story that we just read? It puts more of an emphasis on how flat out embarrassing this is to Jesus. Look at this. He's alone. No one is on his side. Shame is intrinsically isolating. So Jesus is alone. He's flanked by criminals. The only people who are around him are basically other people who are actually guilty. So here's an innocent man who is basically surrounded by people who are guilty. He has a slanderous, mocking sign that's put on his head over, over him that just says, Jesus, King of the Jews, which is like ironic and mocking. Like, oh, you, you think you're king? Look, at here's your king. He's dying. And, and, you know, there's an ironic bit of truth in it where, of course, Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's the king of all things. And so there is a mode of truth. But at that moment, that's a, how shaming, how shame-filled would that have been for Christ to have someone put a mocking sign over him that's just, that's basically humiliating him. There's people we know from other stories in the gospel that people are mocking him. Basically, the, re, the priests are mocking him. The soldiers are mocking him. This is done in a public place so that people walking by mock him. Even the people, even the criminal, everyone is mocking him, is, is saying, look what all these great things you did, Jesus. Why don't you just climb off this cross? Hey, why can't you save yourself? You're supposed to be this God figure. Save so everything, everyone is mocking him, is shaming him in and of that. <clears throat> Last but not least, um, he's naked. 
Notice in our text here, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, it doesn't give us any detail about the blood and the gore. It says they took his clothing, his garments, and divided them into four pieces, one part for each soldier, and also his tunic. And the word for tunic there is sort of like the inner clothing. It's basically kind of like what we think of with our underwear. It's not, doesn't fit like, you know, it was just like an, a, a single piece that you wore next to your skin. So th- even, every piece of his clothing is not on his body, which means he is literally naked in front of a bunch of people, blood everywhere, humiliated, totally. And that, that's what scripture seems to put the emphasis on, total suffering, dying in the most painful and shameful and undignified death that could ever be devised. And this is interesting. I read one commentator that said, <clears throat> this is suffering that degrades. It's suffering that degrades. And that's interesting because it's possible to have suffering that doesn't degrade. That it's possible to suffer but with dignity. So, and, and, and whenever someone is suffering with, in a way that's with dignity, we like it. We're like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a really notable thing. Like think about an Olympic athlete who puts their body through hell and back to try and compete to, to win in a medal. And we see them you know, with the grimace on their face and they're in great pain and they, maybe they have to do rehabilitation. We look at that and it's like, that's awesome. Look at the, the, and then they win and we're like, wow, look, at, look how, how much suffering they had to endure. And we honor them. We, we give them a lot of laureate. Or, or um, think about people who have terminal illnesses. I, uh, I had a great mentor who died an awful, painful death of cancer. Uh, it was terrible. To the very last minute, he was in excruciating pain. And we look at that, and even his suffering was not shameful suffering. We look at this and we see a person who dies with dignity, who dies with honor. <clears throat> Or think about a soldier who's wounded in combat, who, you know, is, is, is shot or dies doing something noble for his friends or his country. We say this is suffering, real pain, but there's, there's, there's dignity in the suffering. All of those sufferings, they bring honor, they bring dignity. That is not the suffering that Jesus is in right now. That the suffering and the pain that Jesus does, that pain is for the purpose of shame. That the reason he is suffering, this, the, the intent of this suffering is to shame him. That the cross, the cross was designed to be a shame-filled, horrible death. One commentator said, you're executed publicly at major crossroads, devoid of clothing, Eaten by birds and beasts, victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. And it's so real that people at the time who started to think about, and when people started to say, hey, our, 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 the follower of our religion was crucified. You should follow our religion. People were like, heck no. Why do I want to follow the leader of some religion that was crucified? That is insane. That is a shameful religion. I want nothing to do with that. We just don't have a cultural comparison for that today, but that, that's sort of what's going on in here is the shame in this. And not only was crucifixion in general shameful, but this particular cross was even more shameful. Why? Because Jesus is more than just a good teacher who's dying for some good cause. He's more than just a martyr. He's God himself dying for the whole shame of the whole world. 
bearing all the shame of all the world onto himself. Here's the deal. We all have shame. Every single one of us has something that we are ashamed of. The Bible says that shame comes from sin, either from sin done to us or sin that we have done, that we have done things of which we are ashamed. In fact, you could even argue that the, that the most immediate effect of sin is shame. Think about Genesis 3. The first thing that happens when Adam and Eve sin, what's the first thing they notice? That they don't have clothes on, that they're naked and ashamed. That's the first thing they notice when, after, when sin enters the world. They notice their nakedness. Part and parcel, intimately, in, inseparable from sin is shame. Sin shames us. It forces us into isolation, into hiding, into futile attempts to cover ourselves, either from what we've done or what's been done to us. Sort of the image of spiritual nakedness, of like, ah, oh, I don't know, something's wrong. I don't know what to do with myself. I'm not okay. That's what sin does to us. When Adam and Eve sinned, they knew they were naked and they tried to hide it. And look, at the cross, Jesus takes all of the shame that we bear, either from things that we've done or things that have been done to us, and he takes all of it onto himself. He bears all that shame in that moment. Jesus is naked and ashamed. Jesus takes all the shame onto himself. Now, why does this matter? Because it means that Jesus removes the shame from your and from my life. How? Because shame comes from sin that's been done to us and from sin that we've done. Shame is, is it's more than just things we've done, but it's things that have been done to us. And all of us have things in our lives, in our hearts, in our past, in our history, childhood, adulthood. We have things that have been done to us and things that have, we have done that we are ashamed of. That we say, I can't, I have to hide this. People can't know about this. This is too much. This is shameful. I've talked with so many college students who have things in their lives, in their hearts right now, or things that have happened in their past that still have now, of which they're so embarrassed that they hide their face when they tell me. That's what shame does. And the truth of the gospel, of what, this, what the climax, one of the, one of the points of the climax of, of the crucifixion is that Jesus takes all of that shame that we have and bears it on himself. He says, I'm going to take every ounce of that shame and put it on me. I'm going to feel the ridicule. I'm going to feel the despising shame of that. All of the nakedness, all of the abuse, Jesus bears. Which begins as we ponder that, as we meditate on that, as we reflect on that together and in community, to see that that takes shame away from us. That takes the shame that we feel like is ours and we, as, we under, as we ponder that, it says, wait a minute, I am not a shameful person. Christ bore my shame. So that when Jesus utters these three words at the end, it is finished. Well, part of the climax of, that me, of what that means is that the shame is over. Christ bears the shame so that we bear it no more. 
There's a lot of questions I'm sure in that. I'm sure some of you have you know, thoughts, questions about that works like for you. If you would like to talk, feel free to talk with Deborah or Madeline or myself. We'd be happy to process that or you know, tease out what that looks like in your heart and life. So uh, I'm going to press on. So first thing, Christ bears our shame. Second, he, it, he removes our sin. And this is closely connected with the shame thing. He does more than just bear our shame. He, he, he removes sin. And how does, he bear, how does he bear our shame? He does it by removing sin. Remember, the root of shame is sin. So if we're going to deal with shame, we have to go after sin. And that's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. This one's probably more familiar with us, that Jesus removes sin. Most popular verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That gave his son... That's what we're talking about right now. He's not just like he just loans his... No, his, the giving of his son is the shame-filled, painful, excruciating death of his son. That's what happens. So this eternal life that happens only happens because Christ is crucified. That, that, that moment of John, when John 3.16 happens is anticipating and dry, it's like a sneak preview. It's like an end of the Marvel movie that's pointing us forward to, you want this? You want the removal of sin? You want the eternal life? That is only going to happen through this crucifixion event. That is going to happen by removing our sin. So what is sin? Well, there's a lot of different ways to describe sin, but... Uh, biblically, one of the ways you can say it is that sin is the conscious, intentional rejection of God for ourselves. It's rejecting God's glory for our own. Sin is disobeying God's law to follow our own law. Sin is malevolent pleasure in me rather than pleasure in God. Sin is replacing worship of God with worship of anything other than God. Sin is rejecting relationship with God, mostly for isolation within ourselves, into ourselves. And fundamental to the Bible is that sin is deeper than just bad actions. I think a lot of times, you and I, we think of sin as basically just bad things I do on an average Monday night or an average Wednesday afternoon or something like that. Oh, I sinned when I did blank. And those are sins, but those don't get to the core of the problem. The Bible says that the problem is actually much deeper than that. Not that we just do bad actions, but that we are at our very core of who we are, sinners. That we are people whose inherent disposition is to reject God. To reject God. And out of that leads sinful behaviors. That sin is an inborn disposition in every person to twist our energies inward towards ourselves, towards self, in rejection of God. And it's just, it's just natural to human beings to do this. I worked on Sunday. At Sunday, I volunteered at the, the nursery at our church. And you all have heard this before, I'm sure, but kids don't have to be taught to be selfish. There were two little kids who were <clears throat> in the nursery. They're like two and a half years old. They're bare, they, don't even, they don't even have language. And you put a toy in front of both of them, and it, instantly a tug of war erupts. And they just start screaming at each other. They don't even have words to say mine. They just want the toy for themselves. Like, they, we don't have to teach children to be selfish. We don't have to teach children to say, like, mine. They just do it. That's, that's sin. That's the sin nature in every one of us that's buried deep within 
that we as humans have a fundamental disposition from the very moment of having rational thought or even irrational thought that says, me, I want, what's, I want what for me, my money, my sexual choices, my race, my ethnicity, my career. And at the core of the crucifixion, part of the climax of the crucifixion, is that Jesus comes to deal with that sin problem, to remove that heart disposition through his sacrificial death. At the very beginning of John's Gospel, the very beginning one, here's a little preview. At the very beginning, Jesus' cousin looks at Jesus for the first time and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. That, 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 that the whole, one of the, maybe even the whole reason that Jesus came to earth was to deal with sin. How does he do that? That Jesus is the Lamb that was sacrificed for our sin. Jesus is the ransom which pays the debt of our sin. Jesus is the human who suffers the punishment for our sin. Jesus is God who takes the wrath of our sin. Jesus is the righteousness that is offered to us. Jesus is the wickedness of mankind taken on himself. All of those things are happening at the same moment. And as all of those things happen, sin gets expunged. It gets removed. It gets taken away so that the guilt of sin is even no, no, is gone, is no more. So that at that moment when Jesus says in verse 30, it is finished, he means that the effect of sin is gone, that sin has been removed from those who believe and trust in him. Now, why does that matter? That when Jesus does that, when we believe in him, it reorients, it begins to reorient our hearts away from that inward in selfish disposition and, and it reorients it towards him and towards others. That, so that sin, as, as when we trust in Christ and when we say, God, save me. I believe in Jesus. Save me. That, that Christ removes our sin and it begins to reorient our hearts from that selfish inward focus towards God. And here's what's amazing is that sin becomes, starts to become loathsome. Sin starts to become something unpleasant, and slowly obedience and, and following God become beautiful. When I was a kid, I remember there was this section, I grew up in kind of a rural area, there was this section of, the, of uh, when I would go for a bike ride or something around the block, there was this one piece where there was this dog that would come out in a kind of like, it was, kind, it was a big dog, it was kind of aggressive, he'd come out and attack you while you were walking or riding your bike. And I learned not to go that way, but the reason I learned the hard way is you know, you'd be biking past and this dog would streak out, he was a big shepherd, and so he'd like, you know, bite at you and snap at you. I never got bit, but I always had like pedal like a madman. He would like grab your, you know, grab my shoe and all that stuff. And I hated that dog. I absolutely hated that dog because it scared me. You know, it's a big dog. I'm a kid, and I remember one time this dog. Um, he's running at me. He was really being aggressive, chasing after me and biting my shoe. And I'm like kicking him while I'm riding, and I hear the owner shout out like, I don't remember its name, but he like calls the dog off. And, and, and basically saves me from the dog. And I remember, you know, I remember hating that dog and hating that section of, of the block because I, I knew the threat. I knew how dangerous it was. And that's sort of what happens here is that sin, we, we, we hate the thing that we've been saved from because we see the threat of it. 
That's what sin is. As we, as we, when, we're set, when we become Christians, when we trust in Christ, we begin to hate the thing that we're saved from. That we say, oh my gosh, this was a huge threat to me. This was going to kill me. Sin was deadly to me. I hate it. And as we, as we mature in Christ-likeness, as we meditate on what Christ has done in the crucifixion, that we begin to hate the things that were a threat to us. Like I hated that dog. That we hate the actions, we hate the root, we hate the me disposition. And we begin to change towards a Godward disposition. That we begin to change from how can I get what I want to how can I do what God is calling me to do. Some of you have been there where sin becomes loathsome and you say, you say oh, God, God saved me from something. God has delivered me from something that was going to kill me. Hear me say this. The cross is that proof that Jesus saves you from your sin. Listen to 1 Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Listen carefully. By his wounds... We are healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd of your souls. That's what happens on the cross. That's why the cross is so significant. That's why it's so important to Christian theology. It's because it removes the problem with humanity. It removes the problem with you and me that is sin when we trust in Christ. So here's my question. Are you learning to hate what you've been saved from? Are you learning to hate the sin that you've been saved from? Are you in a community? Are you in that process of looking at the thing that you've been saved from and saying, God, that was going to kill me. I hate that. Look what God has delivered me from. How can I, in my words, in my life, in my actions, turn from it and turn towards God? Okay, so Christ bears our shame. He removes our sin. Last, he show, his glory is shown. He shows us his glory. I've not talked about much God's glory in John um, because it's really hard and I haven't figured out how to talk about it yet. <laughs> but I'm going to take a stab at it tonight. Um, the idea of God's glory is all over the book of John. It, all over the gospel, Jesus again and again and again says, the reason I'm here is to display and to show forth God's glory. At the very beginning of the book, John writes, the word became flesh, that is, Jesus became human being and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Over and over again, John is telling us, the reason why I'm writing you this is so that we can uncover or show each other or so that I can show you God's glory. Now, what is God's glory? I think we all have like some idea of it, but it feels really abstract and obtuse and removed. I'll just, I've still been trying to figure out how to say this, but I'll say it this way. God's glory is basically God going public with his infinite worth. God's glory is him going public with his infinite worth, or it's his revealing of his total perfection. So think of it this way. Think about the hype up before a basketball game. Like just, you know, tonight the Aggies are playing down in El Paso, and uh, everyone is there to watch a basketball team, and so the team is getting ready to come out. And so think about a basketball game. The stadium goes dark, and maybe there's like some hype up music getting everybody excited and some spotlights are moving around and uh, it's just getting excited you know the cheerleaders are cheering and and then all of a sudden the announcer says like and here they come your new mexico state aggies and all the spotlights on the tunnel and everybody erupts out and runs cheering and the basketball players come out and everyone's just like yeah 
our team is here. That's kind of what is happening with God's glory. Is in that moment, the revealing, the unveiling of like, yes, here's our team. They're coming out to play. Look how great they are. Look how awesome our team is. That's what God is doing in the crucifixion in Jesus. He's showing us how awesome he is. He's showing us how great he is. He's showing us his infinite worth and his beauty and his goodness. Part and parcel, part of the incarnation, part of the crucifixion is God saying, look what I'm capable of. Look how awesome I am. And friends, God's glory is, there's nothing that shows his glory more clearly than the crucifixion. In John 17, Jesus prays and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know that you are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth and have accomplished this, that the world may know that you gave me to do it. And now, Father, glorify me in the presence of in your presence with the glory that I had in you before the world existed. So Jesus is saying here, my hour has come. That is, this is the time now where I'm going to go die and do what you've called me to do. I'm going to do your work. And in those things, he says, glorify me and be glorified in what I'm doing. That he's saying the cross, the crucifixion is the apex. It's the zenith. It's the high point of God saying, look how awesome I am. Look what I'm capable of. Look how I can bear all the shame of the world on myself. Look how I can remove sin from the world. Look how I can start pushing back the effects of all what's broken in this world. Look how I can begin to make families new again. Look how I can begin to take races who hate each other and make them unified again. Look how I can start to make pol politics work again. Look what I'm capable of in the death of Jesus and what it can do. Look at the redemption that is possible in the crucifixion. At the cross, Christ defeats the power of Satan. He defeats our own wicked hearts. He atones for sin. He bears the shame. He redeems the elect back. This and so much more. All of those things happen at the cross. And that's glorious. We look at that, and if you reflect on that, if you think about that, you think, holy moly, what kind of God is this? that can do all of these things, <laughs> in effect, by killing himself. <laughs> That's incredible. That's glorious that he can do all these things. And that every moment leading up to this, from water to wine, from healing a blind man to feeding 5,000, all of these things are driving towards that point. Anselm of Canterbury, who was a, a, a theologian in the 1100s, he's awesome. He wrote this. He says, He freed us from our sins and from his own wrath and from hell and from the power of the devil whom he came to vanquish for us because we were unable to do it. And he purchased us for the kingdom of heaven. And by doing all of these things, he manifested the greatness of his love toward us. All of these things come together in the cross. 
Like all of these images are coming together. All of these theological truths come together. And y'all, they apply to your life today that, so that Satan no longer has power over you. Shame no longer has power over you. Sin no longer has power over you. All of those things, if all of those things are happening because of the crucifixion, dang, that matters in your life. That has implications for how you live, move, and breathe. That's the cross. That's what Jesus means when he says, it is finished. How many of you uh, watched uh, Game of Thrones and were disappointed by the ending? When I was a kid, I watched, uh, I didn't watch, my sister watched Lost. That was the show that was on. And she was super, dis- same thing as Game of Thrones, the ending was super disappointing. It's just kind of a huge letdown. They're building up for season after season after season. And at the end, you're just like, that's it? That's what you're going to do? It's because we want a good ending. We want something that ties all the pieces together. And here, friends, at the crucifixion, man, do we get it on full display. We get God tying all the pieces together of everything that we need in our life coming together in this moment. And I'll just be honest, if you're not satisfied in this, then it's because you haven't studied it. If this isn't blowing your mind in some way, it's because you're not thinking about it. We have to work hard together to understand and apply what's happening here and to think hard about it because this, this is the moment in history where God is making things right. Where we see our shame born, where we see sin removed, where we see God's glory shown. So what's the response in this? How, is this, how does this affect us? Well, John tells us very clearly. He says, my goal in telling you all this is, is faith. <laughs> it's pretty simple. I want you to trust in Jesus. He says at the very end, of, at the end of the crucifixion narrative, he says, he who saw all of this, he who saw this is witnessing to it. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. He says, I'm telling you all these things. I'm telling you about the crucifixion so that you can trust that Jesus bears your shame, so that you can trust that Jesus takes away your sin, so that you can trust that Jesus is gloriously tying all of history together in his redemptive purposes. So that's what the question is. Do you trust? Do you trust in what Jesus has done in the crucifixion? Maybe for some of you that means trusting for the first time. Maybe for some of you it means finding a place in your heart where it's like, I need to trust with this part of me. I need to trust anew with this part of my shame or with this sin. That's what I would challenge you is find those places to trust anew or trust for the first time in what God is doing in the crucifixion. Do you trust that Jesus can remove your shame? That Jesus can remove your guilt? Do you see the glory of this moment and how it's good news? Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, thanks for this climax that you give us of Jesus bearing our shame and how that, the good news that that is, of Jesus removing sin, of Jesus gloriously tying all of redemption together in this moment. Help us to see. Help us to trust and believe. Help us to be transformed by it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.